Good morning. It's a joy to be together on this beautiful June 19th. Please open your Bible to Matthew 19. Matthew 19. We're continuing our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. And what a journey it's been. Each, each, uh, each verse we come to, each, uh, each story has something to say to us about who God has revealed himself to be in Jesus Christ, and it's just been a wonderful journey. Now, as you, as you turn there, uh, I just want to make a comment about June. June is an interesting month in our, our culture today, and uh, everywhere you go, the confusion of our culture is just more and more evident. It's hard to go into a store without being confronted with the confusion that abounds in our culture. Even this morning, as I was uh, finishing up my sermon, and I'm using my word processor, and I ended up in the preferences pane of my of Microsoft Word. And down there in the preferences is a little uh, little button I could click, and it was show your pride. And and it was a theme that you could use, and it was just like wh- like what in the world? Where is this coming from? But our culture is is all in on educating us and re-educating us on what they see as the good and the true and the beautiful. It's what our culture does. Each week, we as the church gather together to be educated and re-educated on what is really good and true and beautiful. And that's what Jesus sets out to do in, in Matthew and in the text that we come to today. So let us look at God's word together that we might be transformed and renewed in the ways of his kingdom. This is the word of God. Beginning in Matthew 19, verse 1, I'm going to read through verse 12. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Verse 10, then the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive the saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have, been, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. After I read this passage to my family this morning, my son said, Oh, Dad, happy Father's Day. (laughs) But this is the Word of God, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient for us. Thanks be to God for His Word. And may He give us, by His Spirit, grace to hear His Word and be transformed by His Word. I've got two simple points this morning. And I'm going to spend the vast majority of my time on the first point. So just a heads up as you look at your watch and you're like, wow, this is going to be a long, long sermon. We're going to spend comparably less time on the second point. 
Uh, but prior to getting to those points, I just want us to look at the context that Matthew provides. And we saw this in verses 1 and 2. We see how Jesus had finished teaching in Matthew 18, and he goes away from Galilee and enters the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And verse 2 says, And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Now Jesus has been teaching on relationships in the church, and now he turns resolutely toward Jerusalem. And he goes toward Jerusalem with a purpose, and it's a purpose he's been telling his disciples. He goes there to suffer and to die. But even as he makes this journey, his ministry continues. He's not just trying to get there as fast as he can so he can get this dying stuff over with. Everywhere he goes, crowds follow him. And Jesus, ever compassionate and all-powerful Savior, he sees their need and he heals them. And I think it's so interesting how Matthew describes this. He doesn't mention one crowd. It's not the crowd goes with him. He describes large crowds, plural, many crowds, many large crowds, as if one large crowd wasn't enough to accompany Jesus. There are several of them coming after Jesus. And Matthew doesn't mention Jesus healing individuals or even specific ailments. Jesus simply healed the crowds. It's ambiguous, but Matthew's point is clear. So great is the power of Jesus. So tender is his mercy. So sufficient is his grace that wherever he goes, even in the midst of large crowds, he brings healing in his wings. Isn't that remarkable? Can you imagine being among these crowds, being among these large crowds? You're one of them. Imagine the stories that are being told. People declaring that the pain they've dealt with for years and years is gone. Or over that way, there's someone hearing for the first time. Over here is someone who is seeing for the first time. And the crowds are caught up in all that Jesus is doing, eager to follow him, eager to listen to him. But not everyone feels this way. There are some who don't like where all this seems to be headed. They don't like the way that people are responding and following. This Jesus has come and he has shaken things up. He has upset the status quo. Something must be done to derail whatever this Jesus is doing. So here come the Pharisees with their questions. And this leads us to our first, and, and given the context, un, context, unexpected point. So Jesus, all these crowds following Jesus, and our first point is this. The purpose of marriage. The purpose of marriage. Verses 3 through 9. So the Pharisees come to Jesus, and they come to distract him from all that he's doing. That's their hope. They don't really know what his mission is, but they certainly don't want these crowds following him. And so they come to derail him, to send him down a rabbit trail, hopefully with no hope of getting back. And as I was preparing uh, this week, I, I, was, I thought back to a, a time in my life where I, I often gave myself to seeking to derail the mission of those in front of me. And that was in high school, and particularly it was in Denise Griney's 11th grade English class. She was my teacher. And she was the most kind and uh, joyful and sincere and gracious teacher that I ever had. And I would not be described with any of those words at that time. And oftentimes, if there was an assignment that I wanted to avoid or a discussion that I didn't really want to have or a test that we were supposed to take, I might raise my hand and ask Mrs. Griney, so can you tell us about like, what Mr. Griney thinks about that? And off she goes. And maybe half an hour later, she would realize, oh, we don't have time for that assignment. And I'd be, yes. 
But uh, little did she know that was my intent the whole way. I just was feigning interest, uh, much to, I mean, it just reflects on my maturity at that time. Hopefully I'm a little bit more mature, but uh, also reflects on just Denise's just graciousness. And uh, she was a joy to be, be around, and it was a joy to be in her classroom. But I would often seek to derail her class, much to her chagrin, I'm sure. In the same way, the Pharisees, that's what they're coming to do. Uh, they, they want to derail what Jesus' mission and purpose is. But rather than just bringing questions to distract, they were questions meant to tempt. The word that Matthew uses is the same word he uses when he speaks of, of the devil coming to tempt Jesus in Matthew 4. Look at verse 3 in chapter 19. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? The question of the Pharisees, it revolves around this popular debate in their day. What are the lawful reasons for divorce? And the question came from a verse in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. And there Moses records that uh, when a man writes his wife a certificate of divorce because he has found some indecency in her. And it's this, this phrase, he's found some indecency that this debate centered around. What does that mean? What is meant by indecency. And there were really two schools of thought among the Pharisees, two sides of the debate. One side held that indecency was sexual immorality. It meant sexual unfaithfulness. And if the wife was unfaithful, then the law required divorce. That was the one side. The other side, the more, let's say, liberal side, the other side held that a man finding some indecency meant that a man could divorce his wife for anything he decided was indecent. It could be an argument. It could be a burnt meal. Uh, There was one rabbi who taught that even finding another woman who was more beautiful in his estimation, that was grounds for divorce. So the Pharisees come to him with this question. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause or every cause? In other words, who do you agree with? Who do you side with, Jesus? Who do you think is right? Now the Pharisees, I mean, they think they've set this brilliant trap for Jesus. Because if Jesus sides with those who think that divorce is required for adultery, which they probably thought he would go that way, then they'll make sure that Herod hears about this. And perhaps Jesus will suffer the same fate that John the Baptist suffered. On the other hand, if Jesus sees this danger and doesn't say anything to offend Herod, he'll probably say something that will offend all these people that are following him. Either way, the Pharisees have set their trap to tempt Jesus to derail his mission, and now they just have to sit back and watch that trap spring. Little do they know that their questions only give Jesus an opportunity to further advance his mission, to further teach his followers, further re-educate them on life and relationships in his heavenly kingdom, to further teach them on the good and the true and the beautiful. And Jesus' answer is, is just remarkable. And it teaches us God's, God's purpose, God's intent for marriage. Look at verses 4 through 6. I'm going to read them again. And Jesus answered them, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now we could spend several weeks looking at this brilliant answer, and uh, while there are like 5,000 observations you could make about it. I'm just going to keep myself to five things that Jesus teaches us here. 
Five things it teaches us here in this answer. I'll go through them pretty briefly. First, Jesus teaches all of us, the Pharisees, his disciples, the crowds, and us today, something about how to read the Bible. I think that's the first thing we should notice. And what he shows us is that where the Bible begins is of first importance in understanding all that the Bible says. It begins in Genesis because Genesis is meant to be the beginning. It sets the tone and gives direction to everything that comes after. You see, the Bible is not just some hodgepodge of stories with no real connection. It's this growing narrative that moves toward all things being made new. And we cannot rightly understand any part of the Bible without understanding how it fits in with this overarching narrative. So by asking the Pharisees, have you not read from the beginning? He's telling them that they've started in the wrong place. God addresses divorce in the very first pages of Scripture, and the Pharisees just don't seem to get that at all. So right away, Genesis goes, Jesus goes to Genesis 1 and 2 as the right and good thing to do. So that's the, the first thing Jesus teaches us, how to read the Bible. Where it begins matters. Second, Jesus teaches that God created humanity, male and female, from the beginning. This is seen in Genesis 1.27. The idea that there is a gender and sexual binary is not a cultural or social construct, despite what people might say. Jesus says right here, that it is embedded in creation. From the beginning, he made them male and female. God did not make Adam androgynous or neuter. He made him a man instantly, right away, at the beginning. When he created Eve, he made her as a woman instantly. God creates men and God creates women. And God is the, the originator, the inaugurator of sex and sexual difference. And we don't want to quickly pass by that in our day and age. We are not male and female because of sin. We are not male and female because of history. It is a very part of God's creation that he made us male and female. And this is a very part of all that God declared very good. So Jesus teaches that God created humanity male and female from the beginning. Third thing Jesus teaches us here in these few verses is that Jesus teaches that marriage is normative for humanity. Marriage is normative for humanity. You see, this man Adam, he was, he was placed in the garden. He was placed in a fruitful garden. I mean, think about the Garden of Eden with abundant provision. And God said, it is not good for this man to be alone. So amidst this blessed creation, what God recognized, maybe Adam hadn't realized yet, And so God gave Adam this job, and he had him name all of the creatures. And as Adam's doing this, he's looking for someone to join him in this perfect world, to to partner with him. But this man felt lonely after going through that job. God made him this way. God wanted Adam to feel this loneliness that could only be resolved in the making of a woman. That they might be joined together and might become one flesh. I love how Matthew Henry describes the creation of a woman. Matthew Henry was a uh, 17th century Puritan. He says this, The woman was not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart 
to be beloved. This is God's purpose and God's intent. Humanity is made to be relational, and there is no relationship closer than that of a man and woman joined together as husband and wife in marriage. That is why a man shall leave his father and mother. No bonds are stronger than the bonds between a husband and wife. That is God's design. So Jesus teaches that marriage is is normative for humanity. Fourth thing Jesus teaches is that marriage, this marriage union, is meant to be permanent. Marriage union is meant to be permanent. The language that Genesis 2.24 uses and that Jesus quotes is that the man is to leave his father and mother and hold fast. Hold fast. The husband is to hold fast to his wife. Now this is not like a holding fast like I am hanging off the edge of a cliff and I'm just hoping to hold on. The, the word hold fast means to be, to be glued or welded together. It actually is speaking of, of two pieces of metal being fused together, cemented together. There, there's no tearing apart what is held fast. It's a permanent union, a, a union that is never meant to be dissolved. And at every point, a husband should be wholeheartedly devoted to, loyal to, steadfast toward his wife and no one else. And they shall become one flesh, meaning that every boundary that used to exist between two people goes away for as long as they both shall live. Not as long as they both shall love, as long as they both shall live. Pastor Ray Ortland, he says it this way, he says, In real terms, two selfish me's, Start learning to think like one unified us. Building a new life together with one total everything. One story. One purpose. One reputation. One bed. One suffering. One budget. One family and so forth. Marriage removes all barriers and replaces them with a comprehensive oneness. It is the all-encompassing unity that sets marriage apart as marriage. And he goes on to describe marriage as, as one mortal life fully shared between one man and one woman. That's what marriage is. That's God's purpose for marriage. One mortal life fully shared between one man and one woman. The fifth thing Jesus teaches about marriage is that marriage is, is of God. And this is something that's, that's easy to miss, I think, as we just might read through this passage quickly, but look at verse 6 again. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Then Jesus says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage is not a product of historical forces. It came down from heaven as a part of God's good design, as a permanent good for all of mankind. God gave it and God gives it. It was and it is His to define. Marriage is this wonderful gift given by God. His idea, He makes it possible. He brings man and woman together. These are five things that Jesus teaches us in these three verses. But the Pharisees are not done. Even though Jesus has answered their first question in this stunning and brilliant way, they have a plan B. Their trap still has a shot. Like it's still holding together just a little bit. So they come back to Jesus with a second question. And we see this in verse 7. They said to him, 
Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? They're like, gotcha. Like, this is their trump card. They've been waiting for it. We know the law. We know what it says. Don't come at us with that have-you-not-read garbage. The Pharisees, like our culture today, even our Christian culture, held that divorce was not only normal, but that it was also a, a right and a command given by God through Moses. And the only problem with this, and the same is true of our culture today, is that the Pharisees don't understand God's word. It's kind of a big problem. If you're only going to have one problem, that's not the problem to have. They don't understand God's word. They don't understand God's commands. They don't understand God's purpose for marriage. So again, the Pharisees, they've got Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 in mind. And in his answer, Jesus shows what they fail to understand. Look at the beginning of verse, verse 8. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. Now we're going to get to the hardness of heart bit in a, in a moment. But what I want to highlight is that word, allowed. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. Do you see what the Pharisees misunderstand? What did they ask? They asked, why then did Moses command us to do this? And Jesus says, uh-uh, Moses didn't command anybody to do that. Moses allowed you to do that. There's a pretty massive difference between being commanded to do something and being allowed to do something. They saw what Moses allowed as a command, as a right, but this was just not so at all. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 it's the only passage in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, that, that deals with divorce. And it doesn't have anything to do with whether divorce is right or wrong, but only with what happens if a divorce has taken place. It was a provision in God's law for what to do when things go wrong. It's meant to be read in the same way we would read about masters and slaves and concubines and criminals. Just because God's law addresses these things does not mean that God holds these things out as what is good and true and beautiful. Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 is all about what to do when divorce happens. Not that you are commanded to divorce. But God, in His mercy and grace, in His compassionate condescension, because of the hardness of our hearts, because of our disobedience, he gives laws that are meant to protect the vulnerable. He gives laws that are meant to mitigate evil. And Jesus points out that this is what is taking place in Deuteronomy 24. God has allowed this because of your hardness of heart. But Jesus makes very clear that divorce is not God's purpose for humanity. And so he says in verse 8 that while Moses allowed you to divorce your wives... From the beginning, it was not so. Which harkens back to what he said in, in verses 4 through 6. God's purpose for marriage from the beginning is that it was this permanent union. It was one mortal life fully shared between one man and one woman. And so he goes on in verse 9 to finally answer the Pharisees' original question. But in a way that's all his own. You see, while the Pharisees used Moses as their starting point for this whole debate... Jesus has gone back to creation and God's purpose for his foundation. So look at verse 9. Jesus says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now given what Jesus has just said about God's purpose for marriage, it's surprising that Jesus gives any allowance for divorce, right? I mean, he's, he's laid it out as this permanent 
union. But now he gives this one allowance that should surprise us. We kind of assume it, but it's surprising. God makes it clear that he hates divorce, but he doesn't say there will never be any of that among my people. Instead, even though it's entirely undesirable, he gives allowance for it. And here in our text, Jesus gives just one allowance for divorce, and it's sexual immorality. Jesus says that to divorce your spouse and marry someone else for any other reason is adultery. And now I want to borrow from pastor and theologian Doug O'Donnell. He says, now comes the flood of a thousand questions, 996 of which I am not going to answer. But I do want to answer four of those briefly. So first question, what is meant by sexual immorality? Well, it primarily refers to adultery. And that includes any sexual relations with someone who is not your spouse. That's sexual immorality. Relations with anyone who is not your spouse. Second question, why is adultery the only exception Jesus gives? The reason that Jesus gives this, and it's important that we read this in context, is because this is the one sin that tears apart the one flesh that God brings together in marriage. Adultery ends marriage by ending this union. So that is why that is the exception that Jesus gives. A third question you may have is this. Is adultery the only exception? Adultery is the only exception Jesus gives here. But in 1 Corinthians 7, God gives another allowance in the case of one spouse abandoning the other. And it's here that as a church, we have to navigate situations with wisdom and discernment, especially as it relates to abuse. We can't take only one verse, like the Pharisees were doing, and ignore everything else the Bible says. A wife who is suffering under brutal abuse uh, from their husband should not stay with that husband until he commits adultery. Like, that is insanity. As O'Donnell says, Jesus rarely gives a tightly tied ethic. Instead, he has given his spirit to his church, the spirit of truth and love and holiness. And he has given us prayer, wisdom, compassion, and our own two cents. Fourth question we may have is, does the sin of adultery or any other grave sin necessitate divorce? Absolutely not. We have to remember all of Scripture's teaching. We don't even have to look back more than a few verses to see Jesus' teaching on the importance of generous forgiveness. Right? We saw this last week in Matthew 18. And Peter's question to Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? I mean... I'm Peter, I'm, I'm a godly guy, I'm going to forgive my brother seven times. He says, no, you have no idea what mercy and forgiveness mean. Now, I do not pretend that forgiveness in the case of adultery is easy or no big deal, but it is something that God can use to put on display His miraculous grace and reflect His incomparable forgiveness. Now, certainly there are many more questions that could be asked and answered about divorce and as for a start, I would uh, direct you to a sermon that Larry preached last April on Matthew 5, 31 and 32 that addressed this topic as a helpful uh, starting point for you. And you, you're also welcome to come to me or John or Larry if you have, have questions. But in the end, when we talk about marriage and divorce and, and remarriage, we must go back to God's purpose for marriage. And God's purpose for marriage is, is one mortal life fully shared between one man and one woman. It's this union that is marked by holding fast to one another. And we must also remember the gospel, a gospel which makes possible relationships 
among sinful people marked by forgiving one another. So in marriage, just as in the church, we, we hold fast and we forgive. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now this leads us to our second point in verses 10 through 12. And again, this will be considerably, considerably briefer than the first point. And that is this, the priority of the kingdom. So we looked at the purpose of marriage. Second, the priority of the kingdom. On the heels of the Pharisees' attempt to derail the ministry of Jesus, and I kind of wonder what happened to the Pharisees. I mean, like, Matthew doesn't say anything else about them. They've asked this question. I'm curious how, what do they, do they just kind of slink away? Like, whoops. I don't know. Matthew doesn't care. But what Matthew does care about is what the disciples bring with their, their own challenge. Look at verse 10. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Now, this is a surprising statement. Like, what is their deal? What are they saying? If a man can't divorce his wife, then don't, he's better off just don't even bother? Is that what he's saying? It's hard, it's hard to really know where this statement is coming from. Most likely, they just misunderstand what Jesus is saying about marriage. They just don't get it. Which, if we've seen the, as we've seen the disciples, that's not really that surprising that they don't get it, right? Kind of like us. Pretty typical. But what is surprising is how Jesus responds. Jesus goes from talking about marriage to talking about singles. For as wonderful as marriage is, Jesus doesn't use the disciples' statement to further define and defend marriage, which I would expect him to do. Instead, he talks about singles, being single. Look at verses 11 and 12 again. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. What in the world is this all about? <laughs> and it's kind of uncomfortable, right? Especially if you're sitting next to your kids. All this talk about eunuchs. One commentator says this. I thought it was pretty funny. This guy is, is very straightforward um, as, a, as a theologian and commentator. And he says, to, to us, the use of eunuch language seems unhelpfully extreme when talking about those who could marry but choose not to do so. And the five-fold repetition of the word within this one verse makes it the more uncomfortable. But the word would have been no less offensive in first century Jewish culture, in which eunuchs were the object of pity, if not horror. And now to answer the inevitable question some of you are asking right now, at its simplest, simplest, a eunuch is someone who cannot get married and have children. They can't be a father or mother. I'll leave it at that. And Jesus provides us three categories of eunuchs. The first are those who are just born that way, so natural. Natural eunuchs. The second are those who have been made that way by someone else, let's say unnatural. And the third category, which is a category that Jesus introduces and which is Jesus' concern here, are those who decide to be that way for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now in Jesus' time, it was unthinkable that someone would choose not to marry. There was no category for voluntary singleness. This was just not a, a legitimate or a realistic option. But while Jesus holds out a very high view of marriage, what he communicates right here is that our view of the kingdom should be even higher. So while Jesus has a high view of marriage, marriage is a wonderful gift from God, meant for the good of mankind. Our view of the kingdom should be even higher. 
In other words, it should not be unusual. This is what Jesus is saying. It should not be unusual. In fact, it should be perfectly normal for someone to choose to give up marriage and parenting for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Like, that shouldn't be surprising because the kingdom of heaven is that valuable, that important. It's of that much more value than everything else. And this is what Jesus' followers don't quite grasp. In subtle ways, their statement reveals that they've fallen into the trap of valuing temporal things, like marriage in this life, over God's eternal kingdom. Maybe they have made marriage the point. But the church misses the point if marriage becomes the point. The church misses the point if anything else becomes the point besides God and his gospel, the heavenly kingdom that has been ushered in by the coming of Jesus Christ. So while Jesus understood the value of family and marriage, he denied himself all these things for his kingdom. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, emptied himself. He took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Why? Why did Jesus do this? Why did he forsake the gifts and the pleasures of this world? He did it for the sake of the kingdom. He did it for us. That he might come and save us from our wayward, sinful hearts. That he might rescue us from the tyranny of the devil. That he might pay the debt for us that we owe. He sought first the kingdom of heaven. And nothing, nothing could derail him. Thanks be to God. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now while we enjoy the gift of marriage and we want to protect the gift of marriage and what it represents, what God does through it. May God give us grace to have the same mind that Christ Jesus had. May we seek his kingdom over all else with our eyes fixed and our minds set on things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. For we have died and our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Amen. 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 Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for all the good that you have given us in your Son. Thank you that by the word of your power, you have spoken all things into existence, including gender, sexuality, marriage, and relationships that we get to enjoy for your glory. Lord, may we not live for any of those things, but may we live for you and your kingdom and your purposes in this world. Lord, renew our minds, transform our hearts, your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.